A reading from Genesis. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God called the dome sky, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth put forth from vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years and let them be lights in the dome of the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swarm and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply upon the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, 
Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is upon the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. The word of the Lord. A reading from Corinthians. Finally, brothers and sisters, farewell. Put things in order. Listen to my appeal. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. The word of the Lord. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Happy Trinity Sunday. This is the one out of 52 Sundays a year where we are invited to contemplate the mystery of the Trinity. And when I'm done, you'll probably be glad it's only once a year. In fact, you, you might want to move it to a three-year rota. Um, because the truth is, the Trinity is one of those things that has been really key to church doctrine and, and in fact has gotten us in a lot of trouble with the other uh, monotheistic groups like Islam and Judaism because they say, you know, there's only one God, so what are you doing talking about three? And, 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 and to be honest with you, even though we know the word and there's some really neat symbols uh, associated with it, um, 
what difference does it make for us is, is often left out. Um, so much so that the greatest Protestant evangelical thinker of his time, Friedrich Schleiermacher, very German name, very German thinker, put the Trinity in the appendix of his systematic theology. And, and to be honest with you up front, it's just a little bit hard because honestly, the, the, the relationship that we have to the, the, the words for God doesn't always connect really well. So we've got the Father and I've got one of those, so I sort of know what that's like. Um, well, um, we can talk about that later, but, but um, I, I kind of think God's a little more like my mom, uh, but we got a father, and we got the son, and I'm a son, so I get that, and then what on earth is the Holy Spirit? I mean, that's where it's a little bit hard, right? Because the Holy Spirit is not like some human relationship that we all know and enjoy, so, so it's not a great analogy for us, right? Uh, interestingly enough, in recent years, people have tried to redo the titles in the Godhead to make better analogies. So actually, if you look at the New Zealand prayer book, this is basically half Maori, native New Zealanders, um, in the Lord's Prayer, it's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's Earth Maker, okay, like makes the earth, I, I get that, that's what that person does. The Pain Bearer, that'd be Jesus, would be my guess, right? And then the, the Life Giver, Earth Maker, Pain Bearer, Life Giver. Well, that's, that's a little more helpful, right? Because I get the task, I get what they're doing. In this country, for about 25 years, um, we've used different language, creator, sustainer, and holy redeemer. Right? That, that, gets, that gets used as well, of course. Creator is God, and the redeemer is Jesus, and the, the, the sustainer of life is the Holy Spirit, right? Sort of. And, and again, you get their roles. The best one I've actually heard that's an analogy, though, I mean, I liked it. It made a lot of sense to me. Came in this class I took in seminary called Issues of Women in the Christian Tradition. It actually should have been called Global Feminism because that's, that's what we did. At the end of the semester, we were allowed to either write a paper. That was safe. I did that. Or we could do some sort of creative project. Not safe. Didn't do that. But somebody in the class chose to be not safe and produced really this amazing image. It was a sculpture of the Trinity using all female personae. So there was the mother giving birth to the daughter and there was the midwife cultivating that birth. And that was really a great analogy for me of the Godhead. I didn't mean that this is one's better than the other. You know, in some ways, we use these words because we think they help us understand, right? And so the better the analogy, the better the understanding, and robust ones are always better than flat ones, especially when we're talking about God. The problem is that the earliest council of the church decided that the doctrine of the Trinity does not exist to help us understand God at all. The earliest councils of the church decided it might hurt your faith, acknowledging the Trinity. So what? <laughs> this is what they said. The Trinity exists because it does, whether you like it or not. That's what they came up with, right, in 325 and again in 381. And they had the really famous phrase that says, God is no more one than God is three. Or, God is no more three then God is one. Again, you can see why people only like this once a year and they don't even like it, right? This is sort of the business. Um, 
So if it's not about understanding God with titles and functions, because after all, right, if we're talking about personalities inside of God, I mean, personalities don't just do one job. They don't just make something or just redeem something, right? That would be really flattening. Well, what's the utility of this? Well, I'd like to suggest that, that actually the doctrine of the Trinity invites us not only to some mystery that's incomprehensible about God, but actually into a mystery about who God is calling the church and frankly the earth to be. Because there's this interesting bit, and, and, and this came back way early in St. Augustine of Hippo, sometimes called St. Augustine, so either way, right? And, and he says, you know, the thing about the Trinity is that the Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and the Father is not the Spirit. They're all different. And somehow, they're one. And, and that thought, I think, is really quite interesting, that God is not uniform. That the unity of the Trinity is not dependent on sameness. The holy thing about the Trinity is that they have a common unity in diversity. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all different and it is their common unity that makes the Trinity holy. Now, common unity, you know, we just shorten that and use the word community. And it's interesting to think right off the bat that community is not just something God likes for us to do. Community is who God is. That is, when we participate in community, we are participating in God's identity. Well, what difference does that make? Well, I think the reason we read Genesis, actually, is to sort of think through this, because in in the traditions I sort of grew up in, um, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. I tried this at 8 o'clock. Most of you are good Episcopalians, so you don't have this baggage, right? But the baggage I grew up with is this. God was really lonely, so God made the world, and then God wouldn't be alone. It's not a really good reason to make the world, is it, you know? But that's what I grew up with. The other one I grew up with was um, God made us so that we could worship and praise God because God needed that. And, you know, it's not as good coming from yourself. So, so, so this was this interesting bit, right, is why did God create the stuff that we just heard about anyway from loneliness or need? And, and, and there's this great Episcopal theologian, uh, Robert Capon, who comes up with a really different idea, who says, you know, the reason that God created the world is because the Father and the Son and the Spirit loved each other so much that, frankly, their love overflowed and there was creation. And that means that God, this is not the only answer, but sometimes when I struggle to know why is it that God loves me so much when I feel so unlovable, maybe the anchor is when God looks at me, God sees the love has for God's self. I know that sounds weird, but I'll tell you, when my daughter was born, I loved her, and I didn't know her. And when I saw her, I realized she was an icon, an image, of the love I had for my wife. And because I love my wife, I love that girl. 
before I knew her. Now, I know her now. She's pretty lovable, I guess. <laughs> but that's where it started, you know? And I wonder if that isn't a bit about how it is that God loves us, right? Because God was so involved in loving God. And then I think it's this interesting bit, right, that God didn't make the world out of need. God made the world out of joy. And it also makes me step back because, you know, I'm a type A personality and, you know, I've got this interesting Myers-Briggs score that makes me very work-oriented. I only like to do work that I'm good at. I call work that I'm good at play, <laughs> which is not right. I think, I think the point of play, right, is that there's not any point. Um, the point is winning, in case you didn't know. <laughs> so, so, so when I do arts and crafts, you know, if they don't come out looking like museum quality, I did that one, right? Won't be doing macrame again. Um, I could approach God that way in Genesis 1, which makes God awfully serious, right? Awfully serious. In fact, that's my impression, is, is a very serious God here. But you know, um, what if we reimagine this and when God goes to make the world, and it sure it says it in Genesis 1, the earth was already there, but formless and void. The universe was a mess. And, and what if God decided that God was just going to play with it? And God decided to do that as spirit, son, and father, and to do it in such a way, actually, that they just followed each other's lead. You notice who starts, don't you? The spirit is over the water. And then it's the Father's turn, right? Now, I know when they wrote Genesis, they didn't believe in the Trinity. I mean, that's a Christian idea. So we're going back and rereading the Jewish Bible a little bit different. I know that. But it is what we're doing. And, and I wonder if they didn't just play a little bit more than I'd like, than I like to play when I make stuff. You know, when I was in middle school, we had to do group projects. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. I want to, had to do group projects, so we'd have a Trinity group, there'd be three of us, and I'd do all the work, because I wanted an A, and you can't trust those other people. So, so, so this is a different, I think, arrangement, right? There's three people that are actually committed to taking turns and interacting and making this world that they all are able to sit back and say, well, that's really good, that's really good. Hey, those people we made in our image and likeness, they're going to remind me of you every time I look at them. Uh, the other bit, I think, that the Trinity helps us think about is not only that God made the world out of God's own love and gives us insight into why it is that God might love us and also reminds us, of course, that God made this world so we could enjoy it with each other, right? Is this... It's this other phrase that happens in the gospel. It's so interesting. The disciples had followed Jesus. They'd seen him killed. They were terrified. They ran away. Then they'd been following the resurrected Jesus for 40 days around, and they come and see him on a mountain where he told them to go. And, and, and I don't want to nitpick the words. Well, I'm going to... Um, <laughs> They saw him and they worshipped him, but some doubted. They were looking at Jesus with their eyes and they could see him and they were giving him worth, 
they were worshiping him. And some doubted, even while they were doing it. The reason I think that verse is so intriguing to me is because it's really good news. It's good news to how my faith feels to me, well, for a long time. The disciples were looking at the resurrected Jesus and some of them doubted. That means it's okay if I do. And I'm pretty positive that this is the most affirming verse of doubt in the entire Bible. And I'm pretty sure it's why we decided as a community to change the Nicene Creed in the red prayer book, the new one, you know, it's 41 years old, that new prayer book, we changed the creed. Does anybody know what it used to say? I believe. And now it says we. Isn't that amazing? Because the truth is, there are days when I don't know if I believe every word of that creed but somebody in the church does and they carry me that day and my hope is the next time we come together I'll be in a position of strength and comfort to carry them if they need it pretty doubt affirmative isn't it and if you follow me down the rabbit hole it makes me wonder if the Trinity doesn't have doubts sometimes too. Now that sounds really strange. How could it be that the Holy Spirit would doubt what the Father's doing? Or how could Jesus doubt what the Holy Spirit's doing? The faith I grew up in, if you had doubts, you didn't have faith. But you know on Friday when Jesus is nailed up on the cross, the last thing he says is, God, why have you forsaken me? Remember what he says in the garden? God, I don't want it to be like this. But if this is what you want, okay. I wonder, just playfully, just playfully, if it'd be okay to imagine that the Trinity has their doubts with each other, but what's never in doubt is that they worship each other that they affirm each other's worthiness and that their worth is never at stake in the middle of their doubts. In the epistle we read, it reads in your translation, be agreeable, oh no, agree to everything? Oh man, it's a problem not carrying this thing around. Listen to my appeal, agree with one another, live in peace. And you know, I think sometimes we're very tempted to take that so literally that we think the only way we can live in unity is if we live in uniformity. It turns out though that word agree with each other is better translated be agreeable with each other. I think that's really, really different, just that little bit, right? The difference between having to say all the same stuff and being willing to agree with each other. In my experience, peace does not mean we all think the same. Peace means we all think the same of each other. I wonder if the Trinity isn't our invitation into living in that kind of community. 
The kind of community where, you know, there's often that person that says, I don't know, I don't want to do that. Gosh, it's so tempting to just kick them out, you know. Yeah, well, we know why you'd want to look for another church. We understand. We'll help you. Um, <laughs> we've highlighted several places we think you'd, 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 you know, this sort of bit. What, what's amazing, right, is to imagine, and you really got to imagine this. I don't, I don't think this is as bad as it sounds at, at face value, that that little nagging dissenting opinion might even exist in the Godhead, and the Trinity deals with it. Because it turns out, you know, and, and, and to live this way of life, I think that's why it's so important that we get invited to this table every week. We, we get invited to this table to receive a bread and a wine that nourishes not just our body but our spirit. Our spirit so that we can put up with people who have different opinions from us but do it in a worthy manner. So that... Uh, that person that always just has to say that thing, we can live in peace with them. And this is why table, I think, is so important in my faith life because the way I grew up, this wasn't a table at all. This was an altar. And you know what you do on an altar. You kill stuff. And in my faith journey, I was asked to kill a lot of things. And to be honest, I've been sacrificed on other people's altars too. My best friend, when I was 18, we finished each other's sentences. And when I told him I didn't think the snake was the devil in Genesis 1, it ended our friendship. Because I was committing blasphemy. I haven't talked to him in 21 years. He sacrificed our friendship on God's altar so I wouldn't corrupt him with my heretical thinking. God, I wish we'd gone to the table. The first time I met somebody who was my friend, and then he told me he was gay, and I had a real crisis. I mean, I had a real crisis because I'd grown up, we didn't do that. My spiritual leaders told me to put him on the altar so that he wouldn't corrupt me. I don't know how it is I went to the table with him, but I'm grateful every day to God that I did. That I did not put him on the altar. The first time I met a woman who was called to ministry I sure did want to put her on the altar because that's what we grew up with. Thanks be to God, we went to the table together. This, this bit about living together, not in uniformity, but in community. And that being not what God wants, but who God is. I'm pretty positive that that is the Great Commission. To go throughout the world and live in community. Not uniformity. 
Which is why Jesus tells us at the end, it will be difficult, but remember, I am with you always. We will never go on this mission alone. God will never forsake us when we try to live in holy community. No, quite the opposite. That's exactly when we live into what God wants and who God is, no matter how difficult it is. I suppose if we could do it, it'd be worth talking about the Trinity once a year. <laughs>